0: Have you ever failed to recognise someone, failed to recognise who they are, and then later on you realised who they were, but it was too late? Rico Tice is a minister in London, and he was once invited to lunch at a very posh restaurant. He arrived early, uh, dressed in his best clothes, and waited in the foyer. And standing opposite him was a young man who looked vaguely familiar. Uh, for, For five minutes they stood there, and neither of them said a word, and Rico was racking his brain thinking, ''Do I know him from somewhere?'' Is he, is he someone from church? Is he someone, I, I don't know. And so neither of them said a word, even though the young man looked as if he expected Rico was going to speak to him. But he couldn't remember who he was, so he said nothing. It was only as the young man left that his identity was revealed. He was Prince William, the future king of England. Rico's comment, I didn't see my future king, so I didn't take the opportunity to relate to him. Another story. Three young men jumped on the bus in Detroit in the 1930s. A lone man was sitting at the back of the bus, just hunched in a corner, minding his own business, but they tried to pick a fight with him. They insulted him, but he didn't respond. They provoked and abused him. Still, he did nothing. And when the bus stopped, the stranger stood up and they realised he was much, much bigger than they realised he was. As he walked past them, he reached into his pocket and just took out a business card, handed it to them, got off the bus and went on his way. The card said, Joe Lewis, boxer. (laughs) They had just tried to pick a fight with the greatest heavyweight champion of all time. They were in the presence of a great champion and they didn't know it. And so they did not respond appropriately. Now these two stories help us get to the heart of what Mark's gospel has to teach us today. Mark is unfolding a picture of who Jesus is. We're in chapter 6 of what we're calling the story that changes the world. And in this first half of the book, Mark is particularly concerned with the question, who is this? Who is Jesus? It's the question of Jesus' identity. Everyone has been asking this question one way or another. Who is he? But we find that even those nearest and dearest to Jesus, his selected group of followers, his disciples, haven't quite got it. Not really. And what we see today is that you can know a lot about Jesus, but still miss who he really is, your future king. You can even be in the presence of Jesus, and fail to recognise him and respond appropriately. Because what we see here in Mark chapter 6, verse 30 to 56, is the greatness and the majesty of Jesus Christ like we haven't seen it before. He feeds 5,000 men with a packed lunch. He walks on deep water in the midst of a storm. By any standard, these are extraordinary things. They are miracles, we would say. But, In the context of the Bible, they're not merely miracles. They are both implicit claims to deity. See, we are meant to see the deity of Jesus here, that Jesus is actually God in the flesh. But also, in this section, Mark 6, we're meant to learn from the response of the disciples. And this is written down for us for our instruction and our benefit as an example to us and a warning to us. Here's what we see even though the disciples have been with Jesus all this time and seen all that he's done and heard his amazing teaching and they know him and they've seen his power again and again, even so they still fail to trust him. When faced with circumstances that they couldn't control, they doubted. When things happened in life that they couldn't comprehend, they doubted Jesus. They were fine with Jesus as long as they could understand him. But that only took them so far. And when the circumstances changed, it was like they just ran off the cliff. They were terrified. Their confidence drained away. And you know what? We are just like them. We are just like them. That's why this passage is the most important thing you can think about this week. We have to get this. If we can grip this, or rather, we can be gripped by it, we will be able to face anything that life will throw at us. But if we fail to grasp who Jesus Christ really is, then our lives will be like a house built out of cards. A house made of cards, have you ever done that? A house made of cards, it looks pretty nice. Until someone blows on it, boom. So let's make sure, friends, that we are attentive to what God is saying to us today through his word. Let's not miss the majesty and deity of King Jesus. And let's not leave here building our lives on some other foundation because any other foundation that you build your life on apart from Jesus Christ is like you're living in a house of cards we learn two very precious things in this passage today about Jesus first he is the shepherd king and second he is the lord of the storm first the shepherd king secondly the lord of the storm we'll take these two things in turn and then see how they apply to us Firstly, the shepherd king, verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. This is a hinge verse. Last week we thought about the fact that Mark structures his book around a number of what we would call sandwiches, where he starts a story, interrupts it, and then returns to it. And the bit in the middle, the filling of the sandwich, interprets the bread on the outside. Last week we thought about how chapter 6, verse 1 to 30, is all a sandwich about the disciples extending Jesus' mission successfully. But in the middle, there's a long story about John the Baptist who was beheaded cruelly, who was opposed. And basically what it's showing us is that mission is tied up with martyrdom. Discipleship is tied up with death. So if you follow Jesus, at some level you will have to die. Some of our friends in Turkey, who we were just looking at, may have to die. But we all have to die at some level. For us, it's not as painful. But we will have to die to self. But this hinge verse that completes the previous section also looks forward. Because of the successful ministry of the disciples, Jesus' mission has now been multiplied even more. So there's a great commotion. Verse 31 says, There are so many people coming and going that the team don't even have time to eat. You know, they're trying to get that sandwich, and someone comes in with a great need, and they're oh, sorry, I'll stop, and minister to them, and then they're trying to take another, No, someone else comes in. People coming and going, there's no lunch hour on Jesus' team. But Jesus is caring, and deeply compassionate, and thoughtful. He sees the strain on these guys, and so he calls them to have a little retreat. Verse 31, he says, Come away with me, with me, by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Now, there's a quick application here. Jesus doesn't summon us to overwork and burnout. Notice that. Being committed to Jesus is firstly about being with Him, not just doing things for Him. Let me ask is your Christian service able to balance times of rest, prayer, quiet? communion with jesus along with hard work it should do he calls them to come away with him and so they get in the boat again and they go off to this solitary place but something crazy happens many people see them and they figure out where they're going to go so they start running and they cross over land and one way or another they get to the place even before the boat does So by the time Jesus lands, in verse 34, it says, a large crowd has gathered. We later learn learn that there are 5,000 men, and presumably there are women and children as well. That's a pretty large crowd, isn't it? That's the size of a first division football crowd on an average Saturday. 5,000 men plus women and children. Now sometimes at the end of a long, busy day, my wife and I will just collapse into a chair and just look at each other and say I'm done. I, I'm done. You know we've got young children still and teenagers. Teenagers want to come and process all their emotional stuff late at night. Young children want to get up at 6:30 and watch cartoons. So we come to a point in the day where we just say I'm done. I have no more to give. I have no more energy. I feel like a lemon that has been squeezed one too many times. I've got nothing left in the tank. Now, I think there was a bit of that feeling in the the boat. Don't you? Oh, no. We've come to this quiet place. Look at all those people. How the heck did they get here so fast? There they are lined up. And maybe... Some of the disciples were thinking, um, Jesus, I wonder if we could just pretend that this was the wrong way. We're going to go this way instead and just sail away? Turn the boat around? How striking is Jesus' response? Look at verse 34. Verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them. Many things. He has compassion. Now in the New Testament, this word, this verb, is only used of Jesus. It means he was moved down to his belly, his guts. He was moved down to the core of his being. He looks upon the large crowd of people in need, and it gets to him. Now why is he moved with such compassion? Because it says they were like sheep. Without a shepherd. A sheep is helpless, vulnerable, in danger, likely to go astray, foolish. Apparently, they don't smell that good either. Now, that is not a flattering description, is it? I don't like to be thought of as a sheep. I was once with a group of people who started playing a game over dinner about... I think they called it the animal game. Which animal does, does this person remind you of? And so everyone had to think of an animal, and then they would say. So one guy was there, and they said, he's, he reminds me, he's like a wolf. And he did look a little bit wolverine. And there was another guy there, and they said, he was like a lemur. I thought, okay... Couldn't see the stripy tail, and then they looked at me, and I was hoping for something, you know, quite noble in the animal kingdom. And this young woman said, "You remind me of a panda." <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope this was before the film *Kung Fu Panda*. A panda? Yeah, please give me something else, but but not a sheep. I just wouldn't want to be described as a sheep, would you? Maybe maybe a lion or an eagle, but that's, according to the Bible, this is what we are. We are sheep, and by nature we're sheep without a shepherd. Foolish, vulnerable, and prone to go astray. Now, we're not going to move on from this phrase too quickly, because there's a deeper level here that people who knew their Bible would would have resonated with when they first read it. It's from one of the early books of the Bible, Numbers, Numbers chapter 27, verse 17. God's people have been led by Moses out of Egypt, through the Exodus, through the wilderness, all through those long years of wilderness wandering. And now Moses is coming to the end of his life. And the big question is, who's going to be the successor? Who can lead the people now? And Numbers 27, starting at verse 15, says "At this. Moses said to the Lord... May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them. One who will lead them out and bring them in. So the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. That's where this phrase is used. In other words, Jesus sees them like sheep without a shepherd. These people lack the kind of leadership that they desperately need. They are like a ship. With no captain and no rudder. They are like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus shows himself to be the good shepherd by his compassion for these people. His heart goes out to them. He cares for them. So he gives them what they really need. And what is it? What do they really need? God's word, somebody said. Yes. Teaching. It's not food, first of all. The thing they really need is teaching verse 34 they were like sheep without a shepherd so he began teaching them many things that's what we need primarily we need wisdom we need instruction we need truth that we can live by truth that we can build our lives on that's what we need if we're to grow and flourish as human beings that's jesus primary purpose here but the teaching session goes on pretty late and so there's a practical need as well. It's for food. And notice, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach some people as well. Only this time, it's his disciples. Now, I sort of think of the disciples at this point as being a little bit like the keen students. And you know, students who always want to show the teacher that they're learning. They've always got their hand up. Mm, 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 mm. I've got the answer. Mm, look at me, teacher. Teacher always picks someone else who hasn't got their hand up. Teacher who brings an apple. A student brings an apple from the teacher's desk, and here's these disciples. They're walking around with a clipboard. Yeah, it's going pretty well. Great teaching, Lord. I'm on the team, Jesus. Go, preach, preach it. And then they think, Hang on, it's getting a bit late. Oh, I'm actually really tired as well. You know what? We were coming here for a break, a mini break, and now here we are with these five thousand people and all these women and children, and it's getting dark. Actually, it's a bit dangerous here because it says several times it's a wilderness. It's a solitary place. It's a deserted place. Where are they all going to eat? So the disciples decide it's time. Okay, we're done. And so they come to Jesus with the clipboard. And they say, in verse 35, well, uh, this is a remote place, they said. And it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages And buy themselves something to eat. So they're sounding pretty officious here. And then Jesus just turns to them. It's a great moment. And he says, you give them something to eat. Oh, us. Us give them something to eat. So then they say, and I don't know if there's a hint of sarcasm here. That would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? It literally says 200 denarii. A denarius was a day's wage for a day labourer. So it's 200 days wages to feed this crab. And we know these guys don't have much money. In fact, a little bit earlier in the chapter, he was telling them to go on mission with no wallet. So they're really not... This is just they're trying to show Jesus this is not going to happen. We can't possibly buy enough food down at Tesco's for this crowd. So he says, okay, how many loaves do you have? And they actually haven't even found out. So he says, okay, go and see. So off they go, scouting around, and they find out. And they say, okay, we've got five loaves and two fish. Pretty simple lunch. You know, you get your bread. This is pretty much what we do on a family picnic. We've got five children, not 5,000 you get break the bread, put a bit of fish in it, you know, there you go. And so they're, they're, I think they probably think at this point it's proof <laughs> that it's not going to happen. And Jesus says, okay, now go and organize them into groups. And they're thinking, oh my word, he's really lost it this time. We're organizing them into groups. How far is this five loaves going to go? So they sit down. On the green grass, interesting feature. The groups of hundreds and fifties. Just like Moses used to organise the people in the wilderness, in groups, hundreds of fifties. And Jesus takes these five loaves and the two fish, he looks up to heaven, gives thanks, breaks the loaves, and he gives it to them, he says, now share it out. And as they're sharing it out, as they're sharing it out, it just keeps multiplying. Until in the end, everyone is eaten. But they haven't just had a snack. Everyone, it says, has been satisfied. And then afterwards, the disciples have to clear up and they get one full basket full of leftovers each. So there was really enough. What a banquet in the wilderness. Jesus lays the table, provides the food. What a contrast to Herod's self-serving banquet earlier in the chapter. This is the real king's banquet. Come, whoever you are, no money, no price, come and eat. And everybody eats. And they're satisfied. Now this is a creation miracle, isn't it? Only the one who made all things could make things multiply. No human being could do this. Skeptical rationalists after the Enlightenment went to great lengths to try and disprove this miracle or to explain it away with some other rational explanation. Like, it's really a lesson in sharing. You know, they all had some food, they just needed to be taught to share it. But that's totally alien to our text. Everything in this is surprising to the disciples. They're amazed by it. It's not a lesson in sharing, it's a lesson in who Jesus is. He is the good shepherd who leads the sheep and provides for them. You remember the great Psalm 23 The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, the green grass. He leads me beside still waters, He restores my soul. Jesus is the good shepherd who provides for his people because he can, because he's got the power of God himself, the shepherd of Israel. So this is what Jesus is doing here, is showing these guys something far beyond what they believed about him already, which is that he is the shepherd king, the long-awaited king who would feed God's people and lead them. Now, this episode is finished. They've got their baskets of leftovers. And immediately, it says in verse 45, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him while he dismissed the crowd. And as he sometimes does at times of great crisis or times of pressure or times where he's being misunderstood, Jesus withdraws himself to pray. And he prays. But the disciples have got their marching orders. They're supposed to row the boat over to a place called Bethsaida. And in this episode, we learn the second thing about Jesus which is that he is the lord of the storm. Firstly, the shepherd king. Secondly, the lord of the storm. And it's an incredible story because they're out in the middle of the lake and you know some of these guys were experienced fishermen. They knew this lake well. They were on it all the time. They'd rowed it many times. And here they are, it says, straining the oars. It's a word that literally means torturing the oars. They're just wrestling with these oars and they can't get through. The storm is heavy. And there they are going along And and so Jesus, from the land, sees the disciples straining at the oars. The wind is against them. And in the dark of the night, shortly before dawn, between about 3 and 5 a.m., the darkest time, he goes out to them, walking on the lake. He goes to them, walking on the lake. And he was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Now what's going on here? Again, something that rationalist, post-enlightenment people have have trouble believing is that Jesus could walk on the water, so there are all sorts of explanations. You know, there was actually a hidden sandbank, and he, he was kind of walking along from that, but appearing to be walking on water. Or it was sort of an optical illusion, he was actually on the shore, but because of the storm, it looked like he was on the water. I mean, these things stretch your credulity. They all saw him, it said, and they were terrified. These are people who know the lake, they know where they are, they've been rowing for a while. He's not on the sandbank, he's not on the shore. He's actually walking on the water. And if we try and explain it away, we'll miss the real point of the passage. Would you turn with me to Job chapter 9, verse 8? If you've got your church Bible, it's page 515. Page 515, and there's some very important language. In Job chapter 9, which actually our text is echoing. Job chapter 9 is a description of the incomparable God. No one compares to him. There's nobody like him. He can do anything he wants. Job chapter 9, I'll I'll read... um, From verse 4. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. You see this vision of God that Job is laying out before us, the the (coughs) all-powerful, incomparable one, the Lord of all creation? You can't compare him to anyone. And God alone, it says here, treads on the waves. And that is the exact same phrase that is used in Mark chapter 6 of Jesus walking on the water. He's treading on the waves. He's treading on the water. And it says in Job chapter 9 verse 11, when he passes me, I cannot see him. Now God passing by in the Old Testament is very significant because no one can see God or they'd be utterly consumed, such as his majesty of power and glory and holiness. You can't see God. Even Moses, who the Bible says was the humblest person who ever lived, asked to see God. And God said, well, you can't look upon me, but I'll let you see kind of the, the back part of my glory. So he hid Moses in a crack in the rock. And Moses said, he, he passed by. And as he passed by, God revealed his name to Moses. Yahweh, Yahweh, the one who is. And there is no other. So Jesus Christ, seeing his disciples on the water, going on, he comes, treading on the water, and it says he was about to pass by. This doesn't mean that Jesus is just going, going this way. It means Jesus is revealing his deity. Because God passes by treading on the water. You see the claim here? He's the only one that could do this. And Jesus comes to encourage them and to show them himself that the fancy word is a theophany, a manifestation of the glory of God. And what do they do when they see him? This amazing revelation of who Jesus really is. How do they respond? You see what He said? They thought he was a ghost. And they're scared to death. And these are people who, like us, don't expect to see someone walking around on the sea in the middle of the night. They're absolutely terrified and they cry out. And immediately he speaks to them and he says, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, again, embedded in this text is an amazing claim to deity because the word that Jesus says, Take courage. Here's the word Ego Amy. I am. Don't be afraid. I am. The very same phrase that God gave to Moses when Moses asked for his name. I am. So here is Jesus Christ, the handyman from Nazareth, in his early thirties, walking on water, passing by, and speaking and saying, don't be afraid, I am. You see who we're dealing with here? The Lord of the storm. He climbs into the boat with them, the wind dies down, they are completely amazed. And then it looked, this is real kicker verse 52 they had not understood about the loaves their hearts were hardened so even though they'd already seen jesus feeding the five thousand with those few loaves they would seen evidence that jesus is god their hearts were hardened after all that after feeding those people with those loaves after walking on water can you believe these guys how could the disciples see so much about jesus and yet still failed to trust him. How foolish they were, how short-sighted, how lacking in faith. Of course, we would never be like that, would we? Or would we? Have you learned that Jesus can be trusted in every situation, even when circumstances seem to call it into question? Have you learned that Jesus can be trusted in every situation? One of the lessons of the disciples, I think, is that this kind of trust takes time to develop. And Jesus is leading us, like a shepherd, to greater and greater trust in him as we follow him in our lives. Apparently, sheep don't like being led. They don't understand what is happening to them. They don't enjoy it. They question the wisdom of the shepherd. One former shepherd, Douglas Macmillan, writes about the process of rescuing a lost sheep. He says this, even when sheep are found, it's very difficult to round them up and bring them home unless you have a dog to scare them. The lost sheep rushes to and fro. When you find it, you must seize it, cast it down, tie its forelegs together and its hind legs together and put it over your shoulders and carry it home. Now we, according to the Bible, are like sheep. That means we are foolish and helpless and misguided and when he comes to find us we don't like it we need a dog to scare us we need to be cast down tied up and put on his shoulders you know we have to learn how to trust it takes time a surprising command you give them something to eat is like a swimming coach taking the learner to the edge of the deep end and then going and in they go we're in the deep end You'll never learn to swim if you stay in the baby pool where you can touch the bottom. Then Jesus' appearance in the dark of the night, walking on water, is this unveiling of his divine nature. He's showing them who he really is. And when you see that, it is terrifying. Now, why is it that we only learn to trust Jesus by being thrust into the deep end? Why is it that we only learn to trust by being put into situations... we are out of our depth why is it that we can only learn to trust Jesus in a storm by going through the storm I don't know why I wish I did but it seems to me that we only really behold Jesus for who he is when we get into the boat you only see him as you trust and follow him in the greatest storm you see him more That is the place where faith is forged. James Edwards' scholar writes this It is in the midst of storms, hardships, and adversities that Jesus reveals himself to the disciples. But there's another lesson here in this text that is just as important it is that faith is not inevitable, faith is not an automatic outcome of knowing Jesus. Faith is not even an outcome of being with him. Faith is a choice. It is a personal decision to take what I know about Jesus and trust him, even though I don't know what's going on now. And keep on trusting when life gets bent out of shape. It doesn't happen passively. It doesn't happen automatically. The disciples teach us this very interesting thing. Even seeing Jesus do a miracle in front of your eyes doesn't make you a person of strong faith you think that you would if only I could see it no it says it's not about what you've seen it's about the heart faith is a decision to trust Jesus Christ take what I've already known about him and apply it to my life now and more often than not it is a decision that must be made in the face of a struggle in the teeth of the storm in the middle of fear You could summarise this passage today with a single command. Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. That's from 1 Peter 5 verse 7. Cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Since Jesus is a shepherd, he cares. He has compassion down to the core of his being. And it is his job as a shepherd to heal the broken, find the lost, support the weak. And since Jesus is also God, the one who treads upon the waves, the all-powerful shepherd, he will succeed in what he wants to do. Therefore, we will be freed from anxiety only as far as we are disciplined to remember and apply who he is to our current situation. Let me say it again. We will be freed from anxiety only as far as we are disciplined to remember and apply his identity to our current situation. I want to finish with a true story of something that's happening right now in another part of the world, in South Asia, to some friends of ours called Alex and Betsy. Uh, We first met them more than 10 years ago, Alex and Betsy. Alex was one of the, the most gifted and one of the most brilliant students that I ever met at seminary, and that was a seminary that attracted a lot of very bright students. He was very, very gifted. But he didn't want to go and be a pastor in a big American church or or a lecturer in an American seminary. He wanted to be a teacher in a Bible college somewhere in South Asia where the church really needed good Bible teachers and where people were being persecuted and killed for being Christians. So he worked very, very hard to get there. He not only finished his studies in America, he then came to Oxford and did a PhD with a top New Testament scholar. Uh, But all the while with this goal in the future of going to Southeast Asia to live there. And so they finally went and they raised support and they moved there. Four children, young children, out to this country where you get tropical diseases and you name it. And, they, and then he has to learn the language. And this is not like learning a, a language that's similar to English. This is very, very different. So they, they've learned it and, and it takes him a couple of years. And finally he gets to the point where he can preach in the language and then teach in the language. And all the years of hard work and, and, and raising children in a tropical country very, very far from comfort and home in America. And then this year, Betsy had a stroke. She's in her 30s. I mean, a mother of four young children flown to Singapore. The doctors have done all sorts of tests, still not been able to determine what caused it. It is all the more unsettling because she is young and has no known risk factors. Here's what he wrote. Betsy was anxious to return to me and our children in the country having been away for 11 days. Upon returning home Betsy's alarming symptoms have persisted. She continues to experience intermittent faintness, dizziness, numbness, tingling and waves of full body panic. Many of these sensations preceded the stroke and so she frequently feels as if she's about to have another one. The cause of the symptoms is unknown and we wonder whether she is reacting to some of the medications. One thing is certain, it is very risky for Betsy to remain here right now. So how do they respond? They've been given a medical leave of absence, they have to go back to America, stay with parents, take their four children their whole life, all those years they've been working towards it, and go, and as a young mum, no one knows what's going to happen. No one knows. So Except God. Here's how he finishes the letter. Despite this trial, we have so very much for which to be thankful. We are thankful that Betsy's stroke wasn't more severe and that we have access to such good medical care. We are thankful for loving family and friends to walk with us in these dark days. We are thankful for the promise that our lives are hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3, that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand, John 10. And that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. See how he's taking the Bible here, applying it to his life? I'm going to say it again. We're thankful for the promise that our lives are hidden with Christ in God, that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. While we are wrestling with what seems like a strange turn of providence, we remain confident that He has a good plan for our lives. His kingdom purposes cannot be thwarted. Together with you in the good fight of faith, Alex. Do you see how he's applying what he knows about Jesus to his current situation, which is bent out of shape? Friends, Jesus Christ knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your needs Better than you know your own needs. He knows what you need, not what you want. And Jesus loves you more than you love yourself. In John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's how much he cares for you. No one took his life from him. He laid it down for the sheep. He was killed for you. So, cast all your anxiety upon him. And learn to sing. I'm going to read some of an old hymn here. Then we'll pray and we will sing. This is from a hymn that was written in uh, the 17th century. By Samuel Rudagast. What a great name. Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all. Let's pray.